The Nonprofit Hour, a weekly look at Portland's nonprofits and do-gooders, with interviews, profiles, and documentaries. This is the Nonprofit Hour here on X-Ray FM. The show is brought to us by the Media Institute for Social Change, a public interest media lab that works to inspire, empower, and engage emerging media producers. I'm Jason Dennington. On this week's show, we'll be hearing a conversation Julie Falk had with Stephen Reichert of the Rebuilding Center on Mississippi Avenue. This is an organization that... When its name is mentioned in conversation, so many people respond by saying, I love that place, that they actually made the phrase their motto. While many in the Portland area have been to the Rebuilding Center or are familiar walking past its impressive block-wide structure on North Mississippi, most might not be aware of its origins, history, and vital work in community building. Stephen takes us through the story of the organization that was founded as Our United Villages, shares some anecdotes of people who have felt its effect in their lives, and brings us some music, one of which is by a local Portland favorite of mine, Ural Thomas. But all that will be coming up in just a few minutes, because now we have some nonprofit news for the week. The National Fight for 15 campaign has been growing in strength and numbers here in Portland in their support of raising the minimum wage to $15 per hour. There are multitudes supporting, sometimes competing, ballot propositions, but many had suspected that the time had passed in this cycle for the state leaders to weigh in on the subject. However, on January 14th, Governor Kate Brown raised the issue during a press conference about her 2016 agenda. Although our economy is getting stronger, Wages have not kept up with the rising costs of childcare, housing, and food. I will work to raise the minimum wage and find ways to make housing more affordable for working families struggling to make ends meet. She then followed that up with her proposal to the state legislature that recommends raising the state minimum wage to $13.50 per hour and within the Portland metropolitan area to $15.52 phased in over several years. Currently, the state minimum is set at $9.25 an hour, and the proposal would have that increase January 2017 to $10.25 across Oregon and to $11.79 inside Portland. Subsequent years would see gradual increases up through 2022, after which it would be indexed to inflation. Under Brown's plan, Portland's eventual rate would be slightly higher than the $15 per hour to take effect in Los Angeles by 2020, San Francisco by 2018, and Seattle citywide by 2021, but would be spread over a greater timeline. This is sure to have an effect on nonprofit organizations throughout the region, and many have already expressed support for the concepts. Nonprofit organizations recognize that while it will have a direct impact on their operating budgets for staff costs, it is also an issue that can make change in the lives of many of the people that they serve. The Nonprofit Association of Oregon issued a statement 
that it feels that the proposal is, quote, a good start and a great opportunity for the Oregon legislature to take a deeper look at the nuances around this issue. The timeline proposed for the changes allows, in our opinion, for a manageable path to help nonprofits preserve their level of services to communities. It is our hope that the governor and legislators will continue to look at this issue and the proposal will be strengthened further. In questioning many of their members throughout the state, the NAO found most are supportive of a living wage for their staff and program participants and do not wish to seek an exemption to an increase as long as it can be phased in so as to not disrupt their community services. As a matter of fact, throughout the Portland area, many organizations have proactively put such changes in place themselves. When we spoke to Victor Merced of Hacienda CDC, back in September, Julie Falk had asked him about this. Can you talk a little bit about um, Hacienda's um, position on the minimum wage here in Portland? Well, uh, first of all, everyone at Hacienda, uh, we've adopted a policy that everyone earns uh, at the lowest level on up. Uh, we have a base rate of $15. But we've adopted that policy. We didn't wait for the city or the state or anybody else to tell us that's that's something we want to do. But uh, we're in support of it. I think uh, people need to, to have a living wage. I mean, our residents, uh, I'm, I'm almost certain, earn less than that. And it's a struggle for them financially. So it, 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 I think it's a good thing. I think our position is that we support the efforts to increase the minimum wage. By structuring the proposal as it is, the intention is to create a regional approach that will smooth out differences between the rural parts of the state and the most populous regions surrounding Portland, where the cost of living and housing competition are reaching an increased state of urgency. The NAO found its members support this approach as well as the need for a phased-in schedule, which could be critical to nonprofits which rely on funding from foundation grants or government contracts that may have long application cycles or require time to renegotiate existing contracts. It is generally perceived that it will be better to have a policy like this implemented by the legislature rather than through the initiative process, as it will allow a more public debate on the subject and let various stakeholders share their voices in an open forum. The legislative session will recommence on February 1st, and lawmakers expect to start work on the topic in the first weeks of the month. The Nonprofit Hour show will keep following this as it progresses and keep you updated in future shows. And now on to our conversation with Stephen Reichert of the Rebuilding Center. Here's Julie Falk. Hi, my name is Julie Falk, and this is the Nonprofit Hour, brought to you by the Media Institute for Social Change. Today, I am talking to the Executive Director of the Rebuilding Center, Stephen Reichart. Hi, Stephen. How are you? Doing well. Thanks so much. Uh, we're so glad you're here today. Um, it is an interesting time to talk about um, construction and deconstruction in Portland, and we'd love to hear more about the Rebuilding Center and, and what you do and, and, and what your origins are. Okay, I look forward to it. Um, so um, tell us a little bit about how the Rebuilding Center came to be. Well, it's sort of an interesting story and one that I don't think many people know. We are actually the warehouse that people have come to know and love so much uh, is actually a means to an end. 
And back in the mid-1990s, back when there was a great deal more violence, the drug wars were, were raging across much of the country, uh, there was a drive-by shooting in a southeast Portland neighborhood. And the neighbors came out to talk of it afterwards. And one of the focal points of a lot of the trouble in the neighborhood was a little boy who we'll call David. Um, he was 13 years old, so I say a little boy. Um, and somebody asked the question, what if they knew what David wanted? And um, so nobody really knew. And so one of these individuals went out and actually started speaking with David and asked David what he wanted. And David said he wanted three things. He wanted a million dollars, he wanted a motorcycle, and he wanted his teeth fixed. And so this individual brought it back to the group and they started talking about it. And of course, they couldn't give him a million dollars and they couldn't give him a motorcycle because he was only 13 years old. But the braces sort of hit a soft spot with them. And uh, so one of the people knew uh, an orthodontist and contacted an orthodontist. And the orthodontist says, sure, would be happy to help David out and would do it at cost, which was about $2,000. And so they started raising money uh, for David. And pretty soon they'd raised the $2,000 and David got his teeth fixed. And the thing about David was is that he came to view his neighborhood differently. And uh, he developed a different relationship with his neighborhood and he stopped robbing from his neighborhood. Um, and what people came to realize was what they could do with the resources that they had available, uh, that were already available within their community to affect change. It's sort of like um, what Ram Dass once said, um, you can't change other people, you can only change yourself. And they changed their relationship with David, and the result of which uh, was that David changed his relationship with them. So. Uh, but they were excited about this, and they were excited about the possibilities of what they could do with the resources that they had available to them. And one of the individuals who had some real experience with salvage materials, um, he began to do some research with other not-for-profits, and he came to discover what I'm sure a lot of your guests on this show already know, which is that the uh, tail of money often wags the dog of program. And so this group that was forming a not-for-profit, um, the, the purpose of this not-for-profit was to inspire um, others to use the resources that are already available to them within their community to um, change the vitality, the social and environmental vitality of their neighborhoods. They, they made a decision that they didn't want to be beholden to funders. And so they began gathering salvage materials. They started selling it out of, a, out of a driveway. And later they got a temporary warehouse over in the Pearl, uh, back before the Pearl was perhaps quite as shiny as it is today. Um, and eventually they got the land over on Mississippi Avenue um, in around 2000 uh, and then built these two beautiful warehouses. Um, and... Today we have 50,000 square feet of warehouse that we use and we, we salvage materials uh, from all over the city, all over the, the area. We deconstruct homes, salvage 85% of the products. But what people don't know is that we actually take the profits from our activities and we reinvest those into community. 
So people are a lot more familiar with the means than they are the end. What is what is the end? What is the vision of of, of how that of how those resources are going to change the community? Well, uh, as a, the the mission is to inspire people to utilize the resources that are available in their community to revitalize the social and environmental fabric of their communities. Um, the way that we have done that is that we have convened people who are interested in engaging in change um, and we have facilitated discussions around that change. Um, and you know there are a number of stories of the various things that we have done um, in that process. Um, and but we have always deliberately taken a very low-key stance with regards to our participation. Um, so we have celebrated the work of those who we have collaborated with rather than our own efforts. Um, and that's something that we've had the luxury of being able to do because we generate our own revenue. Um, but we've just come through a revisioning process. And as a result of the revisioning process, we're going to sort of deepen our engagement um, with the organizations that we've worked with. So previously we have um, facilitated discussion, helped them think through what, it, what the change is that they want to see in the world. Um, going forward, we will work with them to offer additional resources, including funds development, strategic planning, human resources consultation. Um, we'll develop a deep bench of uh, consultant services, volunteer services that can be uh, that we can tap into to assist these individuals and or organizations that want to affect change in their community. What organizations have you partnered with, and will you partner with in the future? Well, uh, we've we've partnered with a number of agencies. Um, we partner with the Chinelos Dancers uh, to assist them with Santos United, uh, which is a, a a soccer team um, here locally that they t uh, it's disadvantaged kids who wanted to develop leadership skills through the medium of soccer and we assisted them in helping them to tell their story and they you know they now have uniforms a place to practice um, they've been growing rapidly so um, and 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 then we've worked with a number a uh, number of other organizations as well um, we often provide materials to organizations that are interested in engaging in, um, that have various projects. So, for example, close by here, uh, Kairos uh, PDX, the charter school down on Williams, uh, needed materials for a garden and uh, playground for their kids, and we provided them with materials. There was a group down in Southeast um, that it was a uh, elderly community and they wanted to develop a community garden and we provided them for the, the materials for the community garden and then children at the elementary school nearby came and built out the garden and and then helped uh, with the initial planting of fruits and vegetables in the garden that went on to feed the elderly residents of that community. So um, are the organizations that you partner with, do they, um, do they need to be in, the, in Portland? Or what is your um, kind of footprint in terms of partnership? Well, our footprint in the past has been across the metropolitan area. Mm -hmm. But 
going forward, at least for the near term, we're really going to focus on north and northeast Portland. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to focus um, not exclusively, um, but perhaps more than in the past, there'll be a social justice lens mm-hmm. to the work that we do. Yeah. Tell us more about the choice to, to really narrow in on your on your geographical area. Well, I think there's another number of animating factors behind that. Uh, firstly, we're not large. Uh, so it makes sense to focus our energies in a geographic area. Um, secondly, and this is really key, um, Mississippi was the heart of the black community here in Portland for many, many years. Um, and however unwittingly, uh, the rebuilding center provided by providing an economic anchor in that community, it allowed for the gentrification process, which has been, you know, perhaps the most prominent feature of North Northeast Portland over the last 15 years, it allowed it to really take hold on Mississippi. So we feel, I think, a special responsibility around that issue. Um, And so as Portland begins to focus its attention um, through the North Northeast corridor um, strategy to um, stabilize uh, communities of color that remain here and also to return communities who have been forced, uh, individuals and families who have been forced to leave the area, uh, trying to create the opportunity for them to return to this area. Uh, We believe we have a special role uh, or responsibility to play in that effort and hence our decision to focus in that area. so it, yeah, now that it's it's interesting. It sounds like um, the rebuilding center has had a history with gentrification and 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 is envisioning a different sort of future with regards to its its role and and responsibilities there. Yes, I, I mean I think we have again inadvertently, mm-hmm. um, and at the same time, we receive beautiful materials at the rebuilding center that we make available to people at a fraction of the cost so that they too can have these beautiful things in their home. I mean, we had a, um, a near new wolf range at our uh, site just a couple of weeks ago that sold for about $2,000 and, and other beautiful things like that that just um, materials that just wouldn't be available to people um, ordinarily, but they can acquire them there. So there's, there's sort of the two sides of the gentrification issue. Um, you've brought some music for us to listen to. Um, what's the first song that you've chosen for us? Well, I, it's, it's, almost, it's so obvious it's going to seem trite, but um, Peter, Paul, and Mary, If I Had a Hammer. Perfect. Um, I'm so glad that you brought that. One of my very favorites.
love the rebuilding center and I, I guess it's become your your tagline or your um, t- tell us why um, people feel good when they go to the rebuilding center well I think it's a combination of factors um, one we like to have fun um, and and that's that that's probably a key component we've always got music going on um, and people are always happy to chat with people and uh, and there's also the aspect of the treasure hunt. Um, so there are other places where you can go to get <clears throat> salvage materials in the Portland area. But um, we have the largest collection of salvage materials, certainly in the Portland area. And uh, we believe have or have had the largest collection in North America of salvage materials. And so... That's quite a claim to fame. <clears throat> it is. I'm... I, I, Again, I'm not sure of the accuracy of that, but it's a claim that we've made at times. Um, but there's always it's it's always fun trying to find the materials uh, in the re, in the rebuilding center because it's not always obvious where they are, and and the personalities are there. People just enjoy engaging with the public. And it's, it seems like the so- social justice lens is definitely part of. Um, the vision for staffing the rebuilding center. Can you talk a little bit about about um, about who you hire? Sure. Um, we have an incredibly diverse staff. It was one of the things that really attracted me to the rebuilding center when I came here less than five months ago. Um, it's about probably forty percent of color, um, and and that's exciting. We also, I mean, we hire people irrespective of um, whether or not they have a record. So we're happy to give people a second chance. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons that people enjoy coming to work so much is that um, they've had a second chance to come and work there. Um, we also pay well and we give good benefits and great vacation. So you're out and proud on the uh, 15 now campaign we are working towards 15 now mm-hmm. so uh, we have been starting people at 12 an hour we're starting moving to 1250 at the beginning mm-hmm. of the year um, and we offer three weeks vacation and full benefits so it's it's a pretty good job mm-hmm. for for a lot of people and the discrepancy between the lowest and the highest paid employee is is pretty small as well and uh, that's something that we take a lot of pride in. Yeah, I noticed on your website um, when you talk about who we are and the staff, there's 
it, there's no distinction. It doesn't say what people's positions are or um, um, there's no hierarchy. Um, d- is that sort of emblematic of how of the culture at the Road Building Center? It is emblematic of the culture. Uh, so right now we're involved in a re-engineering process. So we're sort of looking at all of our processes and re-engineering them. Um, and it's wide open. Um, we can't have everybody involved in the rebuilding center. So mm-hmm. we rotate staff in all the time because we need everybody's input in order to get the best output from what we're trying to achieve. So you said you've been at the rebuilding center for about five months. Um, and this is your first, um, executive director position. Um, I'm an executive director and I've, I've heard you say that, um, you've, People have come to that position for the wrong reasons, and I'm curious to know what you think are the wrong reasons and maybe what some of the right ones are. Ah. Um, well, I think that there are um, people out there who are in executive director positions um, for whom who don't always put the organization first, who may tend to put... Uh, their own ambitions before the needs of the organization or the mission of the organization. Um, so yes, I've always avoided the executive director position because I don't particularly like being in the limelight uh, per se. Um, but I've I decided I needed to step up and, and do this. Um, well, because I think that we we all need to we need to put the needs of others before ourselves that the 21st century is going to be a very difficult century um and if we're going to muddle through uh we all need to figure out how to think of others first uh, yeah one of my favorite quotes and i can't attribute it at the moment i need to look it up is you know a, a Something to the effect of, you know, so much could be accomplished in the world if no one cared who got the credit. Yes. <laughs> said that? I don't know, um, but I sort of, it's a rule of thumb for me is, yeah. you know, success has a thousand fathers and uh, failures is an orphan. <laughs> so it's the same sentiment there. And absolutely, it's absolutely true. Yes. So what's, what's the second song you've brought for us today? I actually asked the staff to give me recommendations and I had like 30 or 40 recommendations uh, from staff but um, for those who have been to the rebuilding center everybody knows Tom Petskowski who's our uh, manager of the warehouse and uh, as a man of, of, of great character and a lot of character and uh, he the song that he recommended was uh, I want to be a door <laughs> I don't know that one. <laughs> um, I don't know it either. Right. But, but it's not a bad song. Okay, great. Well, um, we'll enjoy listening to that.
Well, tell us more about um, about what's going on in in, in Portland in, in terms of um, things that are happening at the at at the city level and um, things that are happening at the neighborhood level with regards to. Um, you know, the, the really present issue of, of housing and, mm-hmm. and how the rebuilding center is kind of situated um, in, in those conversations. Right. In those struggles. It's, well, it, there's a number of issues that sort of are, might be considered integrated with one another, but are sort of being treated separately. Um, so right now, one of the controversies that is out there is the controversy around demolition. Um, and it sort of takes on two two there are two aspects to it um one of which is that um there's just a lot of demolitions going on currently uh and there's a lot of neighborhood concern about portland losing uh its character uh, and so that's that's one issue and that's that's a very valid issue um, at the same time there's the portland plan which calls for densification and it's it's difficult to densify if um, we continue to have small houses on large lots. So there's that issue. Um, interestingly enough, um, while the new housing stock is typically far more efficient and hence more environmentally sustainable, um, the other so- flip side of that coin is that it takes so the carbon footprint for uh, constructing a home is so enormous that it takes literally decades before the carbon footprint of, of building a new home uh, catches up with the efficiency that is inherent in that new home. So that's sort of one issue out there. Um, the city council has taken on this issue of deconstruction versus demolition, which is yet a, which is another issue um, that is related with all of this, um, because when we demolish a home, we're simply filling up the landfills. We have a saying on uh, some of our pickup trucks, uh, excuse me, our our box trucks that pick up materials, um, just because it says landfill doesn't mean you have to fill it. Um, So the difference between a demolished home and a deconstructed home is something like 16,000 tons of material that don't go into the landfill as a result. So and those materials can then be reused, um, which reduces the carbon footprint, which reduces the amount of water that is used um, and retains all those valuable materials um, on for a second and third life. So that's a second. That's a, a, another issue. The city has just passed an ordinance to encourage deconstruction over demolition. Um, and currently uh, a group known as the Deconstruction Advisory Group is gathering to try to make recommendations for the city and those will be coming forth to the city at the end of January. The general goal is it is hoped currently about 8% of demolitions are deconstructions and it's hoped that by 2020 more than half of those will be deconstructions as opposed to demolitions. But that has huge implications as well because if we're going to quintuple the amount of material, salvage materials, We've got to find some new markets and new homes for all of those materials as well. So that presents another challenge. Um, And then another related issue that's been on the front page of the Oregonian, at least, is the issue of asbestos. Mm -hmm. And we did a study. um, So every home that we deconstruct, we have it tested for asbestos. Um, Of the 51 homes 
whole homes that we deconstructed over the past three years. Um, and and that's that's one of the core things that the rebuilding center does is actually the deconstruct. You, you that's part of the work that you do is. Yes, we actually take a, a home apart, and mm-hmm. we start literally with the uh, the switch plates, light switch plates, mm-hmm. and then we move down. We take out the cabinets, we take out the appliances, we take out the drywall, then we take off the studs, we take off the roof, we b- take it down literally to the foundation, and we salvage about eighty-five percent of those materials. And so, do you partner with who? who how- so you said you do about 51 a year? About 50. No, we've done 51 over the past three years. Oh, okay. And so are you partnering with, who are you partnering with to get those those opportunities? Who you know who calls you in and says, we have a home for you to deconstruct? Is that- um, individuals and, and uh, contractors as okay. well. Um, most, there are about 300 uh, demolitions a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and about 30 of them are deconstructions. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but there are really only about two, two, uh, companies that deconstruct as opposed to demolish. And that's us and Love It. Okay. And Uh, Love It is not a nonprofit. Love It is not a nonprofit, but, uh, Love It used to work at the rebuilding center. Okay. So we sort of birthed that industry. So, so uh, this is really, this is interesting. I think there are two organizations, companies that do deconstruction in Portland. Yeah, and some others sort of dabble in it. Some yeah. demolition com- companies dabble in it. Mm-hmm. And uh, we actually, when we don't have enough, uh, when we don't have, when we have too much work, we sometimes subcontract with one of them mm-hmm. to do that deconstruction. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of opportunities for growth, it seems like. Lots there. of opportunities. We're yeah. hoping that next year with our recommendations mm-hmm. to the city council mm-hmm. that the number jumps from 30 to 60 Mm -hmm. homes that will be deconstructed over Mm -hmm. the next year. Um, And that'll have a major impact on employment as well, because there are roughly six jobs uh, generated in deconstruction versus one job in demolition. Wow. So what kind of role does um, the Rebuilding Center take in in terms of advocacy or um, in educating um, legislators or 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 politicians or community leaders about the importance of deconstruction? We've taken, in general, a pretty low-key approach to Mm -hmm. that. Uh, We do serve on the deconstruction advisory group to the city, Mm -hmm. um, and we certainly uh, speak with the contractors and encourage the contractors to consider the demolition option. One of the, the deconstruction option, as opposed to demolition, one of the challenges is that it takes a couple of weeks to deconstruct at home, mm-hmm. whereas you can demolish a home in one or two days. And in construction, uh, time is money. Yeah, It's like in retail, space is money. In construction, time is money. And so that's, you know, that's a considerable factor. Mm-hmm. Is, uh, so I'm curious about your staffing. Is it is it cyclical and, and seasonal as far as, as how many people are employed by the Rebuilding Center? Well, we currently have about, we currently have 30 employees. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been higher. Mm-hmm. Um, Back in, back before the recession, we had over 60 employees, most of whom, many of whom were engaged in deconstruction. So we had multiple crews engaged in deconstruction at the time. Um, we're growing again. So we've added four employees in just the past five months. Um, and we're adding a second deconstruction crew, um, mm-hmm. both because we have a lot of business out into the future and because we anticipate 
more deconstruction jobs coming down the pike as a result of the ordinance that's before the city, as a result of the recommendations that we'd be making to the city. So this um, this revisioning process that you went through and this um, this this focus on um, social justice. Was that challenging for your board and for your staff and for the organization? And what sort of challenges do you see ahead as, in terms of really um, implementing that lens and, and living through that lens as an organization? Well, actually, the, the revisioning process arose from the board. Mm-hmm. Um, the board was keenly interested in seeing uh, firmer outcomes from the work that we did um, so that they wanted to see it beyond sort of convening and facilitating conversations with the community and storytelling, which was another aspect mm-hmm. of the work that we did, to um, taking a more concrete role in terms of facilitating change. Um, so so a lot of support from the board. The staff also was interested in seeing more concrete change. Um, and so the staff has been very enthusiastic about the revisioning process. Um, I, we're just, we're very early in this process. We have identified um, a number of early clients that we'll be working with. Um, and, and we're excited about that. Um, so we're um, sort of in early discussions about working with the folks who did the historic Black Williams project and helping them to extend that to Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Um, we're working with Sons of Haiti um, on the corner. Um, uh, who are on the corner in one of the last existing black businesses on Mississippi, mm-hmm. um, and in helping them to uh, regain their um, their financial strength so that they can continue to perform the community work that they've done for so many years. Um, and we've also been working with uh, Living Cully, uh, which is a neighborhood in the Cully, mm-hmm. in the Cully neighborhood and the extraordinary work that they have been doing to bring services to the community and to... Um, to help to stabilize um, the early process of gentrification that has begun to take root there. Uh, so much of what you're describing makes so much sense, um, but I, I, I'm worried it's actually a pretty unique model. Are there other um, models that the Rebuilding Center looks to across the nation for um, t- to see how they're doing this kind of work, or, or is, is Rebuilding Center really um, poised in a unique way in, in doing what you're doing? Uh, I don't know that what we're doing is unique. Um, I think that it's uh, probably not very common. We have a luxury, which is that we generate, for the most part, we generate our own revenue. And so we are free to do what we want to do with that. Um, And with that freedom, it, it, it's it's pretty powerful. Um, we don't have to go out and blow our own horn. Mm-hmm. Um, we can help others be successful, um, and that's really been the animating factor. But I don't think we're unique. I I think of right now of a of the MRG Foundation and the work that they're doing with Meyer Memorial, mm-hmm. um, where they've they're deploying something like 1.2 million dollars uh, to work with community organizations, help community organizations across the Portland area uh, realize their dreams um, to achieve their goals, their vision, um, and they're deploying consultant services uh, in addition to money 
to 10 organizations over a three-year period, um, which will make a tremendous difference. So um, we're simply trying to do the same that same kind of work, although we don't have the financial wherewithal to add money to the mix, just the consulting services. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, and, but I'm thinking of what, what other um, communities or organizations do you look to nationwide in terms of the, the deconstruction work? Oh, well, um, there are... Uh, there are organizations all over the place that are doing that are very active in deconstruction, and you're going to have to forgive me if I can't list the names of it. But there are hotbeds of deconstruction um, in the Bay Area, um, in Seattle area, and in Raleigh, uh, North Carolina, just to just to name a few. Um, so, and one of the it, it's something that's that has gained. Uh, is gaining ground across the United States as we look to build more sustainable communities. Uh, the lead gold and lead platinum uh, standard for construction, at one of the p- specific standards is around reusing materials. So the emphasis in building sustainably includes an emphasis on using salvage materials. So that sort of is an important component of it. Right. Can you? Um Tell me, what were you saying about the asbestos and, and the work that you're doing around that? So I w- we did a study um, of the whole house deconstructions that we had performed in the last 51 mm-hmm. year, le- last three years. We've done 51 whole house deconstructions. Every single house that we deconstruct, it's first tested for asbestos. Of those 51 houses that had been declared asbestos-free, we subsequently discovered upon deconstructing them, 26 of them still had asbestos in them. And so essentially what that tells us is that the only way to take a house apart without risking exposing the community to asbestos is to deconstruct the home. You cannot safely demolish a home. That's really interesting. Um, Can you, have there been, Organizations or um, that have come to look at the work of the Rebuilding Center here in Portland as a you know, model. We get visitors from all over the place, but interestingly enough, we get visitors from Japan. I knew in you were going to give the international. We must have had focus. a half a dozen, uh, half a dozen uh, tours mm-hmm. from Japan. Interesting. Uh, they most of them come through PSU, but not yeah. all of them come through PSU, um, and they're typically. Uh, they're either organizations that are doing something somewhat similar to what we're doing, or they're organi- people who are interested in our community model. That is, working with other organizations in order to, and individuals who want to affect change in their community. Um, I think part of the interest in the deconstruction industry in Japan is because there's so, because as an aging society, they're faced with an increasing number of abandoned homes that mm-hmm. then subsequently need to be uh, taken apart or demolished. And so I think for that reason, from a sustainable perspective, they're interested in the deconstruction industry. But we actually had one group that came through, um, and they want to start a rebuilding center in Japan, and they wanted to know if they could use our name. <laughs> and what did you say? I said, absolutely. And what what would that be in, J- in Japanese? I have no idea. <laughs> um, that's great. Um uh, t- tell us a little bit more about um, 
about other partners that you have. What other organizations or companies are key partners for the Rebuilding Center? Uh, well, there are lots and lots of key partners. Some of them are city mm-hmm. um, s- city departments, such as the Offices of Sustainability and Planning um, with the city of Portland. Um, we partner a lot with Metro. Uh, but we also partner with a number of organizations, such as Oregon Tradeswomen. Mm-hmm. Uh, we partner with Constructing Hope. Um, so there are a number of organizations like that that we work closely with. We work closely with um, literally dozens of agencies that uh, are interested in placing volunteers with us. So Central City Concern provides, um, sends many of their people that th- are working with them in rehabilitation. They come in and uh, they they volunteer with us. In fact, there's a wonderful story of a fellow named Daniel who uh, had come through Central City um, and had then come back to work with Central City um, after having been rehabilitated with them. And he came in uh, and he was giving a tour uh, to some of the volunteers. He was leading a volunteer crew. And we have these really wonderful administrative offices that are built out of reused, repurposed materials. And the floors are solid core doors, and the walls are frequently doors themselves. And as Daniel was coming in there, he looked up on the wall, and there was this very distinctive sort of aqua green door. I believe the number was 401, and it's got a peace sign on it and an American flag. And he said, oh, my goodness, I... I live there. That's my, he said, that's my door. And he pointed at the door and we said, yeah, yeah, we got lots of doors. He says, no, no, you don't understand. I lived behind that door. And that was the door he lived behind uh, wow. when he was rehabbing. So there's a story behind all of our materials There's a story as well. behind every door. There I is guess. a story behind every door. Yeah. Probably many of our listeners um, know about the Rebuilding Center and the, and the place to buy um, great salvaged um, materials. But how can people become involved in the work of the Rebuilding Center? Well, we have literally thousands of volunteers that come through the Rebuilding Center every day, every year. Um, over 23,000 hours of volunteer labor at the Rebuilding Center this year. And everything ranging from architects to denailing wood. Um, and we'll be, we'll be adding to that in the coming year. And it's the equivalent of 10 staff. So it's about 25% of our staff are volunteers. Um, and we couldn't do the work that we do without all of the volunteers. So anybody can come down and volunteer with their special skills or if they just want to come down and help us to rearrange things or pull nails from Naily Wood. Uh, what are things that you take and things that you don't take uh, for donation? Well, one of the things that we do, we have a very liberal policy of things that we take, but we don't take everything. Uh, so we, and we sometimes have moratoriums on things because we have too much and we're not moving it. Um, we won't take painted wood that is, uh, cracking, spidering, um, or if that, when you rub a finger along it, uh, dust comes, paint dust Mm -hmm. comes off. Um, so that's, that we don't take. We don't take wood that is, uh, less than four feet long, Mm -hmm. um, but we'll take a good, we, we're no longer taking um, glass and metal. Uh, we've just recently stopped taking that. Um, we do it on a very limited basis, but, but pretty much we don't take that. Um, but we take 
many, many things. So um, as, as I noted, uh, when we deconstruct a house, we salvage 85% of the parts. So that's a lot of the house. Well, this has been really interesting. I'm sure that um, uh, many of our listeners are going to want to learn more about the Rebuilding Center. So thank you so much, Stephen, for joining us today. This has been Stephen Reichardt. He's the Executive Director of the Rebuilding Center. And I'm Julie Falk. And this has been the Nonprofit Hour brought to you by the Media Institute for Social Change. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. So what song do you have to take us out on today? Well, a great friend of the Rebuilding Center and a real figure in the community is a musician by the name of Ural Thomas, who I'm sure many of your listeners will know. And uh, he he recently cut a 45 of this wonderful hit of his, which is Pain is the Name of Your Game. So I thought that would be a great one to send us off with. Great. Thank you. Come to the end of this week's Nonprofit Hour show. 
The show has been produced and edited by myself, Jason Dennington, and is recorded at the production studios of X-Ray FM. You can follow us on Facebook or via our Twitter handle, at Nonprofit Hour, and find archives of past shows on our SoundCloud page. We'd like to thank our guest on the show this week, Stephen Reichard of the Rebuilding Center. And just for the record, personally, I do love that place. We'd also like to thank the Media Institute for Social Change, our regular hosts, Phil Bussey and Julie Falk, KXRY Radio, X-Ray FM, and most of all, to you, our regular listeners. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you have a great week and join us again next week at noon on Monday for the Nonprofit Hour Show. Thank you.